Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, assistant editor Michelle Rindells talks with state treasurer Zach Conine about how the state is trying to fine-tune a backlogged rental assistance program in hopes that it can successfully stave off a wave of evictions. After that, I sit down with environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg to talk about the coming fire season as the state faces one of the worst droughts it's seen in recent years. Then I chat with legislative reporters Riley Snyder and Michelle Rindells about what's going on this week at the legislature as we approach the final week of the legislative session. And at the end of the show, we have a bonus segment with Riley Snyder and Sean Galanka talking about the NBA playoffs or or finals or or World Series of basketball. I don't know what it's called in basketball. I don't watch basketball. I'm not sure what it's called, but but they have a conversation that made me want to watch it. So make sure to listen at the end. This week, we have a sponsor for the podcast. We'd like to thank United Health Group for supporting the show. If you'd like to sponsor Indie Matters, email Stacy, that's S-T-A-S-Y, at theenvyindie.com. As the state moratorium on evictions ends at the end of May and the federal moratorium ends at the end of June, tenants and landlords alike face uncertainty about what's ahead for housing. Assistant Editor Michelle Rendells sat down with State Treasurer Zach Conine to talk about an influx of federal dollars to help people make rental payments and how the program is evolving to address unforeseen challenges, and we also take a look at the legislature's newly released bill to address the problem. In the past year, there's been no shortage of tension between landlords and their tenants. As renters struggled to make payments during the downturn, and property owners grew frustrated with extension after extension of a moratorium on evictions. The federal government has directed hundreds of millions of dollars to the state for rental assistance, according to Nevada State Treasurer Zach Conine. In total, we've got statewide, we have $365 million worth of rental assistance. But it's been no easy task to get the money out the door, changing rules about who is eligible, the logistical hurdles of screening applications and gathering the necessary documentation, and lack of cooperation from landlords or tenants means the programs all over the state are facing major backlogs. Clark County has served 27,000 households since the program began last July and has the money to serve thousands more, but is only approving applications at a pace of about 1,000 a week and there's about 9,000 applications in the backlog. In some cases, the landlords are rejecting the rental assistance and would instead prefer to cut their losses and start over than deal with the strings attached with accepting the aid, such as not evicting the renter immediately. One of the things we're running into is that landlords might have different motivations. If you say you own a home that uses a rental home, that home's value has increased perhaps exponentially over the last couple of years. And so if you have a renter who's behind on the rent, or even if they're current on their rent, you might want that asset back because you can sell it. New guidance recently issued by the Biden administration seeks to work around these problems, which have plagued rental assistance programs across the country. While the current arrangement involves the tenant applying for the help and then the check flowing to the landlord, The new guidance issued earlier this month specifies that rental assistance can go directly to the tenant in cases where the landlord won't accept the money. 
It also encourages using the money for helping people find an entirely new housing situation, rather than just staying in the same home. We could potentially do a program. One hasn't been spun up yet, but it's certainly something we're trying to figure out for things like moving expenses, security deposits, a future rent utilities, transitional stay, right? Like you're in a hotel for a little bit before you move into a new home. And that that could end up being part of the solution, especially for landlords who don't, who just want the space back. Conine said that even as the pandemic is easing up and restrictions are being lifted, housing problems will persist and the funds will be needed for a long time to come. We know some of those jobs are never going to come back. We know that housing instability leads to economic instability. We saw it during the last recession. And so these aid dollars are for that response and recovery. This is more of a stabilization effort, right? We're trying to keep people safe in their homes, give them the opportunity to go find work um, that can keep them there once this aid goes away. The virus is in a better place, right? We're in a better place from the pandemic than we were a year ago. But the, the things that have come off, the offshoots of that, the, the results and the impacts and the things to fix, that work's going to go on for a long time. But just like with any assistance program, it can be difficult to get the word out to all the people who could benefit from the program. We see this everywhere, right? We've got thousands of Nevadans every year don't apply for FAFSA when they could. There's thousands of Nevadans who could apply for the earned income tax credit every year and, and they don't. There's thousands of Nevadans who could apply or SNAP benefits and WIC benefits. There's thousands of Nevadans who are paying taxes they don't need to because they're not filing them the right way, right? I mean, there's all sorts of different aid programs that aren't fully utilized. Our goal is to get people comfortable with those programs and get the word out of them, right? Either directly uh, through the treasury or through individual agencies or through partners in the community so that we're taking full advantage of the federal programs that we're all paying for. Lawmakers took a big step this week toward trying to push rental assistance dollars into situations where they're needed most. They introduced AB 486 on Thursday, which would prevent evictions if a tenant makes it known that they have a pending rental assistance application and would dismiss the proceedings if that aid is granted. It also creates a procedure for smaller-scale landlords to apply for rental assistance if their tenant is not doing so or is unresponsive. Landlords who receive the aid cannot start eviction proceedings against their tenant for at least 90 days after receiving the money. And policymakers are taking other steps to make sure people are funneled into the program. Through a new eviction prevention program, a Clark County caseworker will automatically reach out to a tenant who responds in court to their landlord's eviction notice. That caseworker can guide the renter through an application for assistance and connect them to other resources. It's all with the goal of making sure the state doesn't leave any rental assistance money on the table at a time when many Nevadans are still struggling. The worst case scenario for us is that a landlord evicts a tenant and neither of them knew that this money was right there. If you want to know more about the Rental Assistance Program, you can find more information at housing.nv.gov. And follow Michelle's reporting on rental assistance and more on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. This piece was produced by Michelle Rundells and myself and was edited by me, Joey Lovato.
And so I'm here with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. Daniel writes a weekly newsletter called Indie Environment. You should all check it out and subscribe. It comes out on Wednesdays. And anyway, this week you had this one piece in it that I really enjoyed reading about. And I think it's really interesting to talk about, which is this coming fire season. Every year, fires are getting worse and worse in Nevada. I feel like the end of summer is always just smoke filled. There's a press briefing that happened this week about the coming fire season. What was that about? Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast, Joey, and also for plugging the newsletter. Uh, you can subscribe on our website. The fire press briefing was was really an opportunity to hear from the people responsible in Nevada for responding to wildfire when they happen. And regardless of the climatic conditions or, or the weather conditions each year, fire does occur in Nevada. And because of the way that the land is managed in the state, there are several different agencies that are responsible for responding to wildfire. There's the state Nevada Division of Forestry. There's local government agencies like your your fire department. And then there's federal agencies like the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, which manages about 65% of the land within Nevada's borders. So the the press briefing provides an opportunity to hear from all of them and hear what, what they're thinking going into the season based on conditions that they've seen on the ground for the last few years. And all sorts of things play into that precipitation, the growth of vegetation, what they refer to as fuels for fire, and a bunch of different variables all play into the outlook and and how these different agencies are collaborating and preparing for the fire season. Yeah. and, And I think one big thing that they said was that we're heading into a drought. We're in a drought. What does that mean for this coming season? It's it's never good when there's dry areas and, and fire. No, it's it's never good when we're in a drought. And unfortunately, we are seeing increased aridification due to climate change. We are seeing more drought conditions. And I can tell you they're already having an impact. I was out talking to some ranchers this week for, for an unrelated story. And they said that this is the worst drought that they've seen in, in 20 years. So from a water standpoint, this has been a rough year. The way that drought interacts with fire is somewhat complex and not always as intuitive as you might think. You might think drier conditions, more acreage burned, but that's not always the case in the Great Basin where we see a lot of fires in low elevation grasslands. We see a lot of fires in years where where more acreage is burned in the Great Basin. It tends to be those types of fires. When there's a drought, those those grasses and fuels are less productive and abundant. So it actually blunts the the, the amount of fuel that's available to burn in, in those areas. That said, drought is still not a good thing. And even if we don't see these mass grassland fires, which is still definitely a possibility, we we are likely to see mid to high elevation wildfires. People look at the amount of acreage burned to judge a fire year, but that that isn't always the best metric, right? Because depending on where a fire occurs, whether it's in sensitive wildlife habitat, whether that's in in a highly populated area, even a sort of small acreage fire can have really devastating impacts on the land and on communities. So you asked, you know, what is the impact of drought? It, it is somewhat complicated, but the expectation, what the outlook looks like right now in forecast is sort of mid to high elevation wildfires, less in that sort of valley grassland area. And also specifically there, there is some risk in Eastern and Southern Nevada, where we have seen exceptional drought. And I believe that's the highest designation 
that the U.S. drought monitor assigns. So in those areas, you're likely to see some fire risk forecasted. Yeah. And, and like you said, uh, 65% of the state is run by the Bureau of Land Management. 85% of the state is run by some sort of federal agency. It's, it's a lot of public lands. All of these agencies have to work together to coordinate when there are fires. How is the state prepared to deal with this year? Like I said, every year is getting worse and worse. Do they have plans in place? What are they going to do? Yeah, I think that's an, an important point as I'm getting into the technical looking at the macro. Across the West, we are seeing more extreme and uncertain and, and longer fire seasons. To answer your question, the governor said that the, the state agencies are collaborating more than ever. And that was echoed by the, the state forester. And it it sounds like a really basic point in some ways, but it is a really important point in this area because collaboration across agencies is extremely important in fighting fire because you have these these sort of multi-jurisdictional layers in fighting fires and responding to fire. And to, to hear that is an important thing because sometimes these agencies can get very jurisdictional and, and that can delay a response. And of course, there's a lot of criticism of how fire is fought by people on the ground. And we will make sure to continue reporting on wildfire and wildfire responses. But that that is one thing that was really stressed in this meeting is that these agencies, despite c- coming from different areas, federal, local, state, are collaborating and are working together. And I, I should say, we're talking a lot about fire outlook and risk, but a really important part of this collaboration and mission is awareness and is to underscore what we can do as communities to A, mitigate the risk of fire and B, prepare for wildfire when it does happen. So these agencies work together on that side of things in addition to just the forecast and outlook and deploying resources. All right, Daniel, well, I think you, I think we're going to leave it there. Make sure to subscribe to Daniel's newsletter, Indie Environment. It comes out every week on Wednesdays. You can find a little subscription box on our website. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me and talking about wildfires this week. Thanks, Joey. By the time you listen to this, there is a little more than a week left of the 2021 regular legislative session. That means we have entered crunch time in Carson City as lawmakers save much of the most complex or controversial legislation for last. Here to break it all down are two members of our intrepid legislative team, reporters Riley Snyder and Michelle Rindells. Riley, Michelle, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Jacob. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. All right. So first, what I want to ask about is the budget, obviously a huge slice of what legislators deal with every session. And as some eagle eyed listeners may know, we entered this session with essentially an austerity budget. But that's been eased a lot, both from an extra half billion in unexpected revenue and a a billions more in federal aid that the state received. So as the session winds down, have we started to see the effects of that extra money on the budgeting process? We've definitely seen the effects of the what I will call a windfall from the economic forum. So this is when revenue projections outpaced what we thought in December that they would be at this time. There's about $910 million more in the general fund in the next two years and the current fiscal year than we expected. So we've actually seen pretty much all of that be distributed. Where it's going, for one, is restoring a lot of these very much loathed 
Medicaid cuts. There was a cut of reimbursement rates to providers. And and anytime you do that, there's the fear that a lot of providers are just not going to be offering the service to Medicaid patients. And when, you know, a quarter of the state is on Medicaid, that's a problem. So they put $110 million in general fund revenue back into the Medicaid program. So with all the federal match, that's like $300 million. We saw $500 $500 million more million be put into the K-12 budget, which is, you know, a huge amount. You don't often see infusions of that much. So, and then we've also got this court decision that came down that Riley has been all over that hurts the budget because it ruled it was unconstitutional to have this particular rate on the payroll tax. And that is a decision that was a $200 million decision. So that kind of messes with the balance sheets a little bit. So if you add all that up right now, you're at about $900 million. So we really have not seen them put the federal funding back into the equation just yet. I see. So that's still on the table. Now, I want to follow up with something that you mentioned, and that's the education funding. Now, the legislature is in the process of approving, what is it, $500 million for additional K-12 funding. What's in there? What's involved in that sort of injection of money? Yeah, so I will take my best stab at that. So part of the complicating factor of this legislative session is that Lawmakers are moving towards a new K-12 funding formula. It's called the Pupil-Centered Funding Formula. It's an update that they initially approved in 2019, and they're trying to stand it up this session. And to help boost it like a pair of crutches, they decided to put the $500 million into the new formula. I've been trying to think of a metaphor that works for this. Maybe if you think of like an investment account, if before you had like six or seven different accounts, Lawmakers are taking all of those accounts, putting it into one big pot that then uh, distributes money, presumably on an equal per pupil basis, with more money going towards students who have uh, special needs or gifted and talented. These are called weights. So it's a big change, and it's very difficult to do apples to oranges comparisons. But after going through all of the K-12 budgets, lawmakers in a joint budget meeting met, we're recording this on Thursday, so Wednesday morning yesterday, to kind of go over the holistic like sum of what had happened. And what had happened is that they added $500 million to try and stand up this new funding formula, move most of the students in the state, I think it's 93, 94% to be in this new formula. So they're obviously very excited. I think anytime lawmakers get to spend half a billion dollars, they they feel pretty good about themselves. There's still a lot of questions remaining about a lot of rural school districts that are not transitioning to the formula right away. They're in a hold harmless state, which means the state's guaranteeing them sort of a base level of funding compared to the last fiscal year. They haven't moved over towards the new formula quite yet. I think there's a concern there that they're not going to be able to get the same funding that they did in the past. They kind of have to figure out whatever kind of off-ramp they want to do. But this is, I think, taking like a 10,000-foot view, like a pretty major accomplishment of this legislative session. The governor had called for sort of another two-year delay on the funding formula implementation in a state of the state address. So for lawmakers to, one, close the budget, but two, also sort of navigate this very tricky maneuver of moving towards a new funding formula. Again, we're updating something that's around 50 years old that kind of everyone agreed didn't work very well. You know, I think they're pretty proud of themselves. They were able to get here without too many hitches. You know, there's still more than a week left, so plenty of time for more hitches to come up. But I think they're feeling pretty good about themselves in terms of public funding of education. 
And just for some perspective, when you add $500 million, there's almost 500,000 students in the state of Nevada. So it's about $1,000 more per student. And right now the state is spending about $9,000 per student per year. So, I mean, it's like a 10% increase. Uh, We're still trying to get the real specifics of that and how much of a gain this represents. But in general, we think it's about $1,000 more per student. And that's a pretty significant percentage increase. So we've been talking a lot about the the state revenue, the extra money that the economic forum found. But something that I'm still curious about is, you know, there's a couple billion dollars worth of federal money through the American Rescue Plan. Do we have any idea how the state plans on spending those dollars? Yeah, that is still a big open question. There's, you know, 2.7 or 2.9 billion dollars that's probably coming to the general fund. But we talked with Maggie Carlton, the head of the Assembly Ways and Means Committee yesterday. And she said, Russell Gindon, this is a a staff member that's a fiscal analyst, needs to get comfortable with the guidance that the Treasury has issued. And I think it was 150 pages of guidance. So they're really trying to study this and feel very comfortable that certain pots of money could be backfilled with federal funds or it could go to X purpose because they really don't want to get in trouble with the federal government and have to come back and fix their mistakes So they kind of want to be careful on what they're doing here. But we think that just by the numbers, they're probably going to put a little bit of federal money in to sort of balance uh, previous, you know, year's budget hole and also this current budget a little bit. But they're also kind of dreaming big. They want to do some major modernization projects for IT systems that run the state. We did see an interesting bill come down yesterday where the Democrats are bringing forth this uh, proposal to do a major Dieter modernization for the unemployment system. But the wording is very unique. It says, if the federal government provides funding for this specific purpose, then we can spend $54 million on it. So uh, a lot of like conditions involved there. So yeah, we have not seen in earnest this money getting spent. And here we are with, you know, 10 or 11 days left in the session. It is looking pretty clear that we're going to need some more time to make those huge transformative decisions with that money. Okay. Well, one last money question, because this is a very large part of what the legislature is doing right now, and that's the mining taxes. So last year, we had a lot of discussion over whether or not the state should increase the tax burden of the very lucrative mining industry here. And now we're in a regular legislative session, and that is, I understand, is still an issue. But where does that issue stand now that we're so close to the end of the session? So it is in this weird, amorphous maybe, maybe not deal stage. So there's been no public hearings. There really hasn't been a lot of public discussion about what's going to happen. But the cards on the table are, there are the three mining tax resolutions, which passed last year in a special session that lawmakers can, you know, within a day approve and send that to the 2022 ballot. There's a pair of separate ballot initiatives that the Clark County Education Association sponsored and got qualified that would raise taxes, the sales tax and the gaming tax with the money supposedly going to education. So they've sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge said that they are willing to take those off the ballot, which again, we're heading into a midterm with a Democratic president. I think a lot of Democrats in Nevada are concerned about losing more seats in these midterms and they don't want to appear 
you know, next to a potentially unpopular sales tax ballot question or gaming tax ballot question, much less a mining tax ballot question, which will probably drive up, turn up in the rurals. So there's a lot of discussion about what kind of deal can we make that the teachers union, the mining industry, and of course the gaming industry, because they're involved in almost every discussion, can be happy with um, that can get passed in the last 10, 11 days of session. Now, Whatever deal comes about needs to get support of at least a few Republicans to meet that two-thirds constitutional threshold, and they're going to want something in return for those votes because they do kind of hold a lot of leverage in in that regard. So I think people are still mildly optimistic that some sort of mining tax deal can come forward this session. What that would look like would probably be a change in some of the mining tax rates, potentially a change in deductions, although I don't think that's going to happen. But essentially, the idea is to make the industry pay a little bit more on an existing tax rate now versus going to the ballot in 2022, kind of rolling the dice with voters and seeing how things turn out there and then getting more money to state coffers starting in 2023. I think lawmakers would rather have that money in the here and now rather than trying to deal with that on a constitutional or election basis in 2022. Yeah, we did see a a good sign the other day. Michael Roberson was in the building. He is the former Senate Majority Leader. He's a Republican. He's out of office now. But, you know, he worked on a mining tax deal in 2011. He worked on an education tax increase in 2015. And he's working for the teachers union these days. So that seems like a potentially good sign that could mean Republicans could get on board with something and the teachers union could be on board with it. So we'll see as the next week unfolds. All right. Well, lots to watch on the money side. But just lastly here, and and what are the major pieces of legislation still left on the board? What are the what are the policy fights that we expect in these last few days here? I think some of them include this public option bill where people would have this option to buy health insurance through a a public system. Very controversial, and not all the healthcare folks are on board, but it's being proffered by Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro, so that could uh, mean it it could survive. There's also the bill about uh, right to return. This would guarantee folks in the hospitality industry who were laid off or furloughed the chance to come back to their jobs, a guarantee. But this is pretty fiercely opposed by the casino industry that doesn't want those legal liabilities on the books. So this was from a couple months ago in session, but there's bills to make expanded mail-in voting sort of a permanent fixture of Nevada elections going forward. That's going to be one of the final days where that happens, just because all of those bills include appropriations. So it's the state spending money on something. And Again, thanks to the state constitution, they have to approve the education budget before they approve any other spending. So there's sort of a bottleneck there in terms of when those bills can come. But I think there's sort of a broad understanding that they're going to pass. There's also a bill to move Nevada up the primary presidential preference primary calendar. There may be changes there. We'll see. I know New Hampshire will go down swinging and never let another state try to go before it. So some negotiations still going on there. The other bill that Michelle mentioned was this big energy transmission bill that was introduced last week and is starting to move through the legislative session that would expand uh, transmission capacity in Nevada, allocate 
$100 million into electric vehicle charging stations and a bunch of other energy-related things. Really, the only potential hang-up for that, which sounds kind of silly to say out loud, is that the Nevada Resort Association is opposed. They have some concerns about oversight on that bill, but that seems like one where the the skids have been greased and this going forward probably pretty quickly. So there's a lot of big policy decisions that will be made the next couple of days. And of course, there's always a chance that bills can get amended, gutted, last minute changes always happen in the last 24, 48 hours of the session. Okay. Well, lots to keep our eyes on, but we'll have to leave it there for now. If you want to find more of our legislative coverage, you can head to the nevadaindependent.com, where we have a comprehensive page dedicated to the legislature, as well as regular updates on every major move in Carson City. And while you still can, subscribe to Riley's newsletter, Behind the Bar, for an inside look at the legislature in its final days. Riley, Michelle, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Jacob. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. This is Riley Snyder. I'm here with our intern, Sean Galanka, who was recently extended as an intern. So if you like his byline, you'll continue to see it in the pages of the Nevada Independent. But we're here to talk to you today about NBA playoff basketball, because I think we're the only two people on staff who actually pay attention to the NBA. So let's just start off with the playing games from last night. We're recording this on a Thursday. Any general thoughts about the the Warriors-Lakers game or the, the Grizz-Spurs game? I, I could do without. I don't think either either one of those teams is going to end up. Well, obviously the Spurs won't, but I don't think Grizzlies are, are unseating the Warriors to get that eighth seed. But we get our first instance of, of LeBron, I think, kind of back at, at full health. And we saw what he could do in the second half. Obviously, the Lakers, I think, were really shaky in the first half. But I think it was just the play-in game is is fun. It's 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 more basketball added to the season. I know there's a lot of complaints about it. LeBron James complained about it. But when we get a game that goes down to the wire and is is won by a 30-foot shot by the, the greatest to ever do it, then I, I think we're we're getting a, a good product from the NBA with the play-in game. Yeah, for sure. I was watching the very end of that game. My wonderful fiance Michelle, <laughs> took over watching the Senate floor, which unfortunately went in at the same time. And I yelled like out loud when that... <laughs> 30 foot three pointer win. And I thought there was no way that was going in. So um, also wanted to ask you put out on Twitter recently, kind of your, your playoff picks. I don't know if any of the playing games have affected what you thought was going to happen in the first round, but tell me a little more about this, uh, this Bucks Lakers finals matchup that you're, you're thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think putting the Lakers in the finals is, is much of a reach. I think there are plenty of people that are still putting the Lakers to go there. Obviously, the Lakers ended up with a low seed because LeBron missed half the season, and, and they're still one of the favorites to come out of the West. I think my my Milwaukee Bucks pick for the finals is probably more of a reach. I know a lot of people are, are kind of shifting between the Nets, the Bucks, the Sixers. Those were the, the top three seeds that were kind of just there the whole season. But I think even with the star power of the Brooklyn Nets, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, they still just don't have the def- the interior defense. To, to stop guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo or Joel Embiid in the playoffs. And I think, like we saw in the Lakers-Warriors play-in game, the Lakers, who were the best defensive team all season, really locked in in the second half on, on that end of the floor, and that's what won them the game. And I just don't think the Nets have the ability to do that. And I think if you have a guy that's reigning two-time MVP, just tearing you up on the inside, there's, there's not a whole lot the Nets can do to stop that. And I, I think... The Sixers, we've seen them choke a lot in the playoffs in the past. And I, I think this is the year that Giannis Antetokounmpo 
takes the leap and and just gets to the finals. I still think in the end, the, the king is going to stay the king. I think LeBron James takes home another finals MVP this year, back-to-back champion. And, and that's kind of how I see things shaking out. That's a spicy take. I love Milwaukee. One of the last things I did before all the pandemic stuff shut down was I went with my family and my brother lives in Chicago. So we went to a Bucks game in like February of 2020. So nice. two weeks later, everything in the world was shut down, but I got to see him play and they just absolutely blew out the the thunder. I feel like it might be Philly's year. I, I saw them play in 2019. I just think Embiid is such a such a unicorn in terms of like his outside shooting. I think they've done nothing but improve. I think the coaching has been much better this year. And I just think, I remember back to the, I think it was 2019, there a Kawhi Leonard shot bouncing off the rim from going to overtime in that game seven. And that could have been their year too. So I think that's, I don't, I don't know if I can pick Milwaukee over, over Philly as much as I love Giannis and, and that team, but we'll, we'll see. I, I, I love every seven game series. Like even if I'm not pulling for a team, I just love the drama, oh, the yeah. crunch time. So cool. Well, this was a quick NBA playoff basketball update from me and Sean. If you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> this is probably a tonal shift from the rest of the podcast, but maybe we will check in on the playoffs as the, the summer continues and see if Sean's predictions turn out right. Sean, thanks for joining. Thanks Riley. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Zach Conine, Michelle Rundells, Daniel Rothberg, Riley Snyder, and Sean Galanka for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which comes out on the first Friday of every month. And email us with questions, comments, concerns, hair care confessions, summer style tips, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There's additional music from me this week and Lance Conrad. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Today's show was brought to you by United Health Group. Okay, no leaf blower, man. Well, he's there, but he's far away, so we're probably good. <laughs> he's always there, waiting, watching, just for us to record. He is. No, genuinely, we could have recorded at any time, and yet, exactly when we do it, he arrives. Yes. <laughs> he's waiting just for us. He's... I think he. I think. I think Michelle lets him know when she's done editing the script, and then is like, "Hey, go uh, make sure you start leaf blowing outside of Jacob's house." It has to be. Oh, we may also hear the uh, dulcet tones of the wind today because um, Vegas is just going to blow away at this point.